Hello and welcome to the Real Demons of Pop Culture. My name is James Zabaliti, your guide through pop culture's underworld, unearthing the origins and eerie allure of pop culture's captivating demonic realm. You also may know me as Dr. J, retired demon hunter and knower of things. In this episode, I'm going to take us back to 1992 to a cult classic. This is the story of Candyman and Vengeful Spirits. Coming to get you, Barbara. I'll swallow your soul! All right, I want you to say it with me. You gotta say Candyman five times. All right, let's get started. Ready? Let's go. Three, two, one. Candyman. 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 Uh, did I get you? Did you say it five times? I only said it four times. So if you said it, you said it, and now you're in trouble. I got you. All right. So, yeah, we're going to talk about Candyman, uh, but let's get some business out of the way. The Real Demons of Pop Culture is a listener-supported podcast. And season two, I'm offering many different ways you can support the show and keep it commercial free. So I have a three tier subscription and I will have the link in the show notes and it's very safe. It's done through Stripe so you can uh, subscribe and here's what we get. So if you do tier one, that is $3 a month called shout at the devil and I will give you a shout out at the end of every episode. The next tier is called straight to hell. $5 a month, you get the shout out plus Access to the next episode a week early. So it will air. I do these every other week. And so it will be the episode you're listening to now. But if you want to hear the week every, well, it's every two weeks. So you'll get it like next week. And then uh, you'll have it a week early. So that's kind of cool. That is tier two. Tier three is the Secret Society, $8 a month. You get a shout out, early access, and a bonus episode. Every time there is a new episode, there is a new bonus episode. And you get with the $8 a month subscription, you will get that plus the shout out plus the early access. If I get 1,000 subscribers, and it don't have to be 1,000 tier three, it could be any, like 1,000 total subscribers, I will spend the night at a legit haunted house and live stream it now you can also support the show we have the real demons of pop culture coloring book that is available on amazon there is a new demon hunter log book this is a legit paranormal investigation log that you can capture all the information of all your paranormal investigations whether that's ghost or demon whatever it is i created this or the serious paranormal investigator. There's also Bookworm Zine. You can buy that on Etsy. And there is Merch and Evil Mugs. All the links are in the show notes. Any way you choose, it will help support 
this show and I can keep it commercial free. Now, let's get into the magic number. The way this works is I count down three, two, one. I think of a number between one and 50, and you write that number down. And at the end of the episode, I will reveal it. If you get it right, you will have an extra special magical day. If you get it wrong, you will still have a nice day. It just won't be extra special magical. I don't make up the rules. My fish does. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. All right, write that number down. And at the end of the episode, I will reveal the number I was thinking about. All right, so this week we're going to talk about Candyman. And, you know, uh, black horror movies are not a common thing. So when I think about horror and I think of African Americans in horror, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is the original Night of the Living Dead. And we had a main protagonist who was black. But if you listen to George Romero, it wasn't because he was black. Like, it turned out to be a lot more important at the time, but it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't a conscious, like, I'm going to make this, make a statement. It was that he was the best actor, and that's why he got the role. It wasn't about his skin tone. But because of the time period and what was going on in the world in the 60s and things like that, this movie and having the black uh, protagonist really did have a strong social commentary in it not on purpose it wasn't like it was meant to it just because of the world the way it was it did and then you know you think about black exploitation in the 70s we had blackula and those are fun movies but it really i think for me Candyman was the one where it came out and you're like, wow, you got this, um, this movie that has this sort of villain monster, you know, along with Jason and Freddy, and now we have Candyman. Um, but there are a lot of commentaries in this. We're going to get to that. Uh, and it's a lot about vengeful spirits we're going to talk about, but let's just jump right into Candyman because in 1992, the movie Candyman was this horror film directed by Bernard Rose based on a short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker. Clive Barker, you know from Hellraiser fame. The film explores the legend of Candyman, a supernatural killer with a hook for a hand who is summoned when his name is spoken five times in front of a mirror. The movie received critical acclaim and has since become a cult classic. Now, the film's origins can be traced back to the success of Clive Barker's works in the horror genre. His story for The Forbidden was published in his anthology, The Books of Blood. And if you haven't read those, I highly suggest going out and picking up The Books of Blood. They are so good. And they garnered attention and praise for the dark and imaginative storytelling that's involved with them. Now, the producers at Polygram Filmed Entertainment noticed Barker's work, and they saw potential for a compelling horror film. So Polygram went and enlisted the filmmaker Bernard Rose to write and direct the adaptation. And Rose was known for his earlier film, Paper House, and was familiar with Barker's work. 
So Rose took the core concept of Barker's story set in the slums of England and relocated to Chicago, where the movie was eventually filmed. And we're going to get into all of that stuff, like the changes and and why they were made and what why I think made it better than Clive Barker's work. So the decision to set the film in Chicago was significant because it allowed filmmakers to explore deeper themes related to urban decay, racial tension, and the legacy of slavery. By situating the story in a housing project beset by poverty and crime, the movie addressed social issues and added a layer of commentary to the horror narrative. The casting of the film was crucial to its success. Tony Todd was chosen for the role of Candyman, and bringing a commanding and haunting presence to that character. Tony Todd's a big guy, and his voice, man, that voice, really does get to you. That baritone, deep voice, uh, really well done. Then we have Virginia Madsen, who was cast as the protagonist, Helen Lyle, a graduate student entangled in the Candyman legend. The movie's production faced challenges, including a limited budget. Still, the creative team found innovative ways to bring the story to life. The atmospheric cinematography, the haunting musical score, and effective practical effects contributed to the film's eerie and immersive atmosphere. Now, upon its release in 1992, Candyman received positive reviews for its unique blend of horror, social commentary, and memorable performances. The movie's success led to two sequels, Candyman Farewell to Flesh in 1995 and Candyman's Day of the Dead in 1999, further expanding the mythology of the Candyman. Now, through skilled casting, creative production techniques, and a unique blend of horror and social themes, this movie became a cult classic, and it continues to be celebrated today. Now, let's talk about some differences from Clive Barker's The Forbidden and the movie The Candyman. This is the big one. In Clive Barker's book, it was a white guy with long blonde hair and incredibly pale skin that was Candyman. The character was in the slums, but he was in the slums of England instead of the projects of Chicago. And the difference also in costume. So in the book, Candyman wears this silly, colorful patchwork outfit versus Tony Todd has that super long coat looking very foreboding and dangerous. So just changing the race of the character and putting it in the slums of Chicago in the in the projects you're adding on a huge layer now this is something today a lot of people sort of get upset about we have little mermaid and now we have a black little mermaid i don't really care and in this example of of forbidden to candyman it actually was an improvement to change the color of the skin. So I look at it this way, you know, you could do something like the little mermaid and I don't think it changes anything. If, if the little mermaid is um, white or African-American or Asian, whatever you want to do, I think it's the same story. It got the same message in those types of things. But in this case, the themes, the symbolism, the impact really changed when you change that character and race. 
The Candyman films, they've etched themselves into the annals of horror cinema, not only for the chilling atmosphere and a terrifying narrative, but also for their profound exploration of themes, intricate symbolism, lasting impact. From examining the devastating legacy of racism to the power of urban legends, these films resonate beyond mere scares, leaving audiences pondering more profound social and cultural implications. So let's delve into those themes, symbolism, and impact of The Candyman. The Candyman can. All right, so, you know, first we have to talk about the legacy of racism. So the Candyman films tackle the harmful influence of racism, exposing its insidious presence and haunting consequences. Through the tragic figure of the Candyman himself, a vengeful spirit born from racial violence, the film confronts the unresolved history of racial oppression. The hook-wielding specter becomes a metaphor for perpetuating systemic racism and the intergenerational trauma experienced by marginalized communities. One theory I love is that there is this theory that the, uh, the, the violence that was put on people, somehow that energy is passed on to, its, to other generations. And the idea of racism and all the oppression of marginalized communities, that that energy gets passed on. And even people today who have not experienced it firsthand there's something maybe genetically built in. And so I think that these movies capture some of that. Now, by facing the dark legacy, the films challenge viewers to reflect on the deep-rooted social issues that continue to haunt society today. So let's talk about myth, belief, and urban legends. Because the main character in the 1992 Candyman, that's what they're doing. They're exploring urban legends. Cultures from all around the world have these same type of legends, the vengeful spirit. Now, at the core of the Candyman films lies the exploration of the power of myth and belief and urban legends. The summoning ritual of the Candyman, by repeating his name in front of a mirror, taps into the concept of collective belief and the blurred boundaries between reality and folklore. These films raise intriguing questions about the nature of urban legends, how they're born, how they shape communities. By intertwining the supernatural with the mundane, the Candyman films, they, they challenge us to consider the cultural significance of legends and their impact on societal consciousness. Now, the, the thing I think is really cool is the symbolism of mirrors and reflections. So mirrors and reflections, they play a pivotal role in the Candyman films, especially the new one by Nia DaCosta, which I also think is the way they worked that was the same way as the Halloween films. So the new Halloween films, the new trilogy is directly from the very first Halloween film in 78 to today. There's no, they just forget about all the, the movies in between. Well, this is the same with the new Candyman from 2021 is a direct sequel to the original Candyman and forgetting about the other two. And I think they did an amazing job on the new one. Mirrors and reflections, they symbolize self-perception, duality of identity, 
blurred lines between good and evil. See, mirrors become portals to the otherworldly, representing the thresholds of our perception and the potential darkness within. The symbolism of mirrors prompts introspection, inviting audiences to confront their own fears, their biases, and hidden aspects of themselves. So through the symbolism, the Candyman films transcend the horror genre. They offer a metaphorical exploration of the human psyche. And like I said, the 2021 definitely plays, I think, more with mirrors. Uh, and in a very successful way, I think it works really well the way they did it. More so than the original. The Candyman films, they have indelibly impacted horror cinema and pop culture. They've contributed to the diversification of the genre, showcasing a unique blend of supernatural horror and sociopolitical commentary, which is really hard to do. You don't want to bang the audience over the head with it. You got to do it in a way that feels like you're enjoying this movie. It's scary. It's got all this stuff. But if you go and revisit it or think about it later, you're going to come up with that commentary and be like, wow, you know, now that I think about it, that's pretty cool. That's pretty deep. So by centering the narratives on black characters and exploring issues of racial inequality, the films have challenged the dominance of white-centric horror tropes. They paved the way for more nuanced and inclusive storytelling, influencing subsequent horror films to address social issues with depth and sensitivity, much like the recent works of Jordan Peele. So let's talk about some pop culture examples. So there's a list of these. Um, I'll try to run through them. I'll try to get the pronunciations right for some of these. But let's talk about Vengeful Spirits and kind of where they are in most of these stories uh, that are in movies or books. So Samara Morgan from The Ring. Now, if we're going to talk about that, we also have to talk about the original Japanese version of The Ring, Ringu. And that wasn't Samara. That was... Sadako Yamamura. All right, so the difference in the American ring, it's a vengeful ghost who seeks revenge by cursing anyone who watches a particular videotape, leading to their death in seven days. The Japanese version, the original version, it's known for iconic crawling out of the television and the cursed videotape. So very similar. And I've watched both The Ring and Ringu. I think they're both great. The Ring 2 sucks. But I think it's the scene where in the ring too, where like the um, all the deer come out and they're like standing there like a tough deer gang looking at the car. Oh my god, I was laughing my ass off in the theater during that. Was it the ring or the ring two where the horse commits suicide? I don't know. That that was kind of weird and funny too. Now the Grudge series again originally uh, was Japanese and that was Kyoko. Psyche, please uh, forgive my pronunciations if they're way off. But in The Grudge, a ghostly presence haunts a cursed house, seeking revenge on anyone who enters, spreading the curse and causing gruesome deaths. Now, in the American Grudge, it was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sarah Michelle Geller. And since I'm a big Buffy fan, I went and saw that movie for her. And I enjoyed it. It was good. Now, Freddy Krueger is a vengeful spirit. You don't think about it that way, but Nightmare on Elm Street series, 
This dream demon seeks revenge by killing teenagers in their dreams, which leads to their deaths in reality. And remember, it's because the parents found Freddy and burned him to death. He dies. Now, he rightfully was killed by the parents because he was a pedophile. And I think a lot of people forget that, too. They dress their kids up as Freddy Krueger. It's like, you realize you're dressing your kid up as a pedophile. Um, but that's... Freddy comes back as a vengeance demon, you know, a vengeance spirit. Then we have the legend of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, a vengeful ghost in Washington Irving's classic story. He seeks his lost head and terrorizes the residents of Sleepy Hollow. And anytime I go up New York, I drive up, like if I'm driving up to Boston or whatever, anytime I pass Sleepy Hollow, I'm just... Oh, I want to go over there and go find the Headless Horseman. The next one's The Curse of La Lorna. And I think I'm saying that wrong, but it's a weeping woman from Mexico, uh, Mexican folklore who drowned her children, and now she rooms the earth seeking other children to replace her own. Now, the next urban legend of a vengeful spirit is a direct, like, there's no, no way that Candyman did not come from this because it's Bloody Mary. And that one is the ghost of a woman who is summoned when her name is chanted repeatedly in front of a mirror. And again, that will result in very horrifying outcomes. So Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, say it with me. Uh, you're not going to do it now because you know I'm going to trick you. Here's another Japanese urban legend. And I'll get this wrong again, but it's Uchisaki Ana. A vengeful spirit of a woman who was disfigured by her husband and now haunts the streets wearing a surgical mask and asking victims if they think she is beautiful. I don't know why, but that is super creepy to me. Let's talk about the woman in black. The woman in black. A ghostly figure dressed in black who haunts the village, causing the death of children as a form of revenge. I've heard about the woman in black. There's also the woman in white. It's a ghost story in England. The last one I'll bring up is the Mothman. And I'm sure we're going to get an episode of the Mothman on the real demons of pop culture. The Mothman prophecies movie, it's a mysterious creature or spirit that is said to appear before tragic events causing fear and uncertainty. So there are just a few examples of vengeful spirits from pop culture. There's so many more depictions in movies, books, folklore from all different cultures all over the world. Now I have a new segment I'm going to add each week for season two. We're going to do this. It's called Buffy Did That. Hello, I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And yes, Dr. J is correct. I did do this. So the reason why I'm doing this, I, my friend Chris would always come and tell me a story or a movie or something he saw or he's thinking about writing. And I'm like, oh yeah, Buffy did that. And he would always get like, oh, yeah, I'm sure they did. You know, like, but Buffy did. They did a lot of stuff. And when it comes to vengeful spirits, there are actually a couple Buffy episodes. I'm going to just pick one. And the reason why I'm picking this one is because it was a ritual for me. It's, it's an episode called Pangs. And it's the Thanksgiving episode. And I used to watch it every Thanksgiving. And I don't think I've watched it the last couple just because like with COVID and stuff. The world's been weird, and I just was out of my traditional things. But Pangs is about Native Americans who, they fall into this um, pit, 
uh, as Xander does when they're working. And then basically the vengeance demons or vengeance spirits of the Native Americans, because of what was done to their people, they start cursing the people of Sunnydale. And it's a, it's a really fun episode, although you could say that the depictions of the Native Americans is a little like dated, like people would be like, eh, maybe that's a little too much. I don't know. I, I think it makes sense because we're talking about how they were basically slaughtered and they're now doing the same things that happened to their people, to the people of Sunnydale. Um, and it is a great episode. And it's funny because all Buffy wants to do is have a Thanksgiving dinner for her friends. And everybody, like, you know, uh, I think Xander gets syphilis or something. And uh, Spike is sick and he's hanging out. It's a really funny and entertaining episode. So check out Pangs. And here is one of the lines from The Vengeful Spirit. I am vengeance. I am my people's cry. They call for Hus, for the avenging spirit to carve out justice. Yeah, that was uh, Hus. That's the name of the spirit. All right, our next segment is trivia. I did not know this first trivia thing about Candyman, but I think it's super interesting. Eddie Murphy was considered for the role of Candyman, but one, he was too short. And two, if you remember, I said they had a low budget. Eddie Murphy was too expensive. Now, Eddie Murphy's 5'9", Tony Todd's 6'5". So he's definitely a more sinister appearance on screen versus Eddie Murphy. Plus, I don't think it would have worked with Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy was so funny and he was a comedian. And I don't think I could have seen him and been scared. I think they did a great job by not choosing Eddie Murphy. Trivia number two. The Cabrini Green Project was used for many exterior and interior, the stairways, the hallways, those scenes. Still, to do that, the producers had to agree to use some of the project's residents, including the ruling gang members, as extras. Another thing I didn't know, and that blows my mind, because if you watch it, I'm guessing that those are the real gang members in the in the original Candyman, which is like, wow, that's messed up. Talk about messed up. The next trivia thing is the bees in the original Candyman were real. No CGI here. You want to know how many bees were used? 200,000. Let me say that again. 200. That's a lot of bees. The bees' knees. But here's the cool part. So Tony Todd was smart. He said, fine, you can put these bees on me. And they put them in his mouth, and he had a dental dam so they wouldn't go down his throat. You can put these 200,000 bees on me. However, in my contract, every time I get stung, I get $1,000. Now, they had the bees, like, at a certain... I guess age or whatever they were at a, they were very tame these bees so it wasn't really like he was going to get stung a lot but he did get stung 23 times that means he made $23,000 for the bee scene 
Okay, our next trivia, Philip Glass. And I don't know if you know who Philip Glass is, but he's a very like interesting musician, and he did the soundtrack to this movie, and he didn't like it. He didn't like the movie, not the soundtrack, because he thought the music was like going to be different with the scenes. Like he, when he finally saw it, it didn't work for him. And later he says, well, you know, kind of okay with it now because it's a cult classic and I'm making money still on it. So I don't know if he ever came around to liking it. I, though, think the music's great. And I think it helps and adds to the creepiness of this movie. Because Tony Todd was cast and they've changed it from a white guy to a black guy, some people were afraid that it was going to be called racist. And so the, the director had to go and have a whole set of meetings with the NAACP because the producers were so worried. And what they said to the director, they said, when they read the script, why are we even having this meeting? You know this is just good fun. Their argument was, why shouldn't a black actor be a ghost? Why shouldn't a black actor play Freddy Krueger or Hannibal Lecter? If you're saying that they can't be, it's really perverse. This is a horror movie. So even then, some worries prevailed. At the time of the film's release, Virginia Madsen said, I was and am now worried about how people will respond. I don't think Spike Lee would like this film. Despite the producer's efforts, black filmmakers still criticized the film, including Carl Franklin, Out of Time, Devil in a Blue Dress, and Reginald Hudlin, House Party, Boomerang, Marshall. I think that the lens that was put on the film as a commentary outweighs the idea that you cast this guy as a black bad guy. I, you know, like literally every film before that, the black actors always had to play bad guys. When you're watching Candyman, they bring up a lot of things in the world where one, they call 911. No one comes. They don't believe them. They don't care. The police don't care. Nobody cares. They don't care that this is happening in the projects. And it's basically pointing that out in the movie. I think it's a great social commentary. Now, let's talk about the origins of the vengeful spirit. So what is the real demon of this pop culture thing? What is, if we go back in time, the vengeful spirit, where did that come from? So we have ancient times. Of course, we're going to have to go where? I know James Greek mythology. You got it. The concept of vengeful spirits can be traced way back to Greeks, right? In the Greek mythology, we encounter the Furies, avenging spirits. They torment those guilty of crimes against family members. And we can't forget about the ancient Egyptians. They believed in the power of vengeful spirits as seen in the myth of Osiris. And I've talked about this in a previous episode, but Osiris was a spirit who sought revenge against his brother, Seft, for his murder. Over in the Asian part of the world, they also, and we've already seen this, the vengeful spirits with um, a couple of those movies, but Asian cultures are rich with stories of vengeful spirits. The vengeful ghost or the yure, I don't even know, it's yure, but I'm saying it wrong. I'm putting a weird accent on it. But a yurei is a prevalent theme in Japanese folklore. These spirits are often women who've been wronged. They seek retribution. And examples include the vengeful 
Onryo, depicted in Kaden. Chinese folklore also features vengeful spirits such as the hungry ghost, a tormented soul seeking vengeance or release. And then we travel over to European folklore. Vengeful spirits also occupy a prominent place in European folklore. A famous vengeful spirit is the White Lady, a common motif in European ghost stories. The White Lady is often associated with tragic tales of betrayal, haunting specific locations as an apparition seeking vengeance or resolution. Now, as society evolved, the concept of vengeful spirits found its way into urban legends and our pop culture. And these legends tap into our primal fears and fascination with the supernatural. And we are fascinated with the supernatural. That's why you're listening to the real demons of pop culture. So people love their vengeful spirit movies. There's an enduring appeal of vengeful spirits in contemporary entertainment. But the enduring presence of vengeful spirits in human culture reveals more profound psychological and cultural significance. These spirits represent unresolved grievances, unrequited justice, the human thirst for retribution. They serve as a cautionary tale. It's reminding individuals of the consequences of their actions. Remember that there are consequences to your actions. The vengeful spirit archetype also taps into our primal fears and emotions, provoking a sense of dread. So there you have it. This week's episode on the Candyman and vengeful spirits. The Candyman, as we saw, it's a film that stands as a testament to the power of horror and is a vehicle for social commentary and introspection. Through their explanation of racism, the, the potency of urban legends, and their symbolic use of mirrors, these films just transcend their genre roots. They prompt viewers to examine the darker corners of society, question their beliefs, and confront the haunting legacies of the past. The impact of the Candyman films, they reverberate through pop culture. It leaves an enduring imprint on the evolution of horror cinema and a broader conversation. It sparks. And vengeful spirits have left an indelible mark on human culture throughout history. Whether they're seeking justice, vengeance, resolution, vengeful spirits embody our collective fears and desires. Their presence in pop culture reflects our ongoing fascination with the supernatural and the enduring power of storytelling. And as long as humans grapple with notions of justice and retribution, vengeful spirits will continue to haunt our narratives, and they will continue to captivate our imagination. I'd love to hear if you have a favorite urban legend that involves a vengeful spirit or favorite pop culture movie, book, comic book, game, anything like that. Jump on over to the School of Dark Arts Facebook group. It's a free group you can join, and we can discuss this further. I'd love to see you in there and say hello. Now, let's do the magic number. The magic number today is 14. Thank you for listening to The Real Demons of Pop Culture. Make sure to jump into the show notes, click on the subscription link there, and if you join the Secret Society, you can listen to the bonus episode right now. It is about Carl Pruitt, who's a real-life vengeful ghost. It's a really cool story. And if you are part of the Secret Society, not only do you get the bonus episode, but every time there's a new episode, you're actually getting a chance to listen to that episode a week before everybody else. All the links are in the show notes. Click on them. 
go and support our show. Remember, it's a listener-supported show. And if I get a 1,000 subscribers, I'm going into this legit haunted house, and I'm going to live stream for you, and I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to, well, I mean, if I go and run away screaming, I think that would be worth every penny to see that. I'd love to see that. All right, I love you all. Peace. Be sure to follow me on TikTok at James Ippolitti. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. The Real Demons of Pop Culture is a Gorilla Delphia production.